we have been going through the book of Acts for months now. And I keep saying God uses his people to accomplish his purposes. In other words, God actually delights in using weak Christians to do some amazing things in our world that can actually alter the landscape of the culture as well as change the eternal destinies of some of the people around you who are created in his image. But if you're like me, then you've probably noticed something. God uses some Christians more than others. So here's the question. Why? Why does God use some Christians more than others? And what can we do to be some of those Christians that he uses most? Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Because we're going to dig into a chapter that I believe shows you God using his people to accomplish his purposes. But you might be surprised at who he uses and why he's using them the way he does. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos was born in Alexandria, that's Egypt, an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. And he came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. That word instructed means catechized, well-educated, trained. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, that's back to Corinth where Paul just was last week in in the early part of chapter 18. The brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And it happened while Apollos was there At Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we've not so much as even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, well, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now, in this message, I'm not going to drill into there are several things that happen in this chapter that Christians get confused about. But it's not going to be the point of my message. But let me just comment on it. When you're reading the book of Acts, which is an historical book, you must keep in mind what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. And that means what is the Bible just telling you happened? And when does the Bible command you to go out there and keep doing that very same thing? We've got Christians that think everything they see in the book of Acts should be happening today. It doesn't say that you have no, nowhere does Paul write a letter or Peter write a letter to the Christians in different cities and say, make sure you lay hands on people so that they get the Holy Spirit because they don't have the Holy Spirit until you do that. The Bible doesn't teach that. 
There's just some things that were happening when the church was just taking off and they're telling you what happened. They're not telling you to try to make that same thing happen. You're going to see something else as we keep reading. And he went into the synagogue, verse 8, and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But, how many times have we seen a but in the book of Acts? There will always be a but. There will always, and I'm talking one T on the end of that. There will always be people that will resist. This is not a new thing. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. What Paul has done is he just exited the synagogue and rented a community center. They had things like that back then where you could just rent it and teach and use it. So Paul sets up shop in the school of Tyrannus. Verse 10, and this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So now we're about to get something else that happened. It doesn't say Paul tried to make this happen, folks. It just happened. It's just describing. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. We've got tele-evangelists and people today sending out little prayer clause that, quote, have been anointed to try to heal people. The Bible does not say to do that. In fact, Paul didn't try to make this happen. People just started doing it. Literally in the Greek, it's not handkerchief, it's a headband. He was a tent maker and he's sweating and he's wearing a headband and people keep taking them. And he keeps saying, please stop. I got to make another one of those. I need my headband. They keep taking his headbands, sweaty headbands and his aprons. But nowhere does the Bible say, let's do this. Let's see if Brad Bigney can have a headband apron ministry. Nope. It's just telling you what happened. What happened? And then, verse 13, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the, one of my favorite verses in Acts right here. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. Say it with me. But who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. What can we learn as to who God uses most? Here's the first thing. Number one, you'll need to be humble and teachable regardless of how gifted or capable you are. Do you realize right here in this chapter, we have one of the most gifted Christians who ever walked the face of the earth. His name was Apollos. It's like, oh my goodness, he's got it all going on, right? He captures what most of us think you have to have if God's going to use you greatly. What you have to have. When you look at verses 24 to 26 in chapter 18, look at it again. It sounds like the resume that most of us wish we had because it says he was eloquent. 
He was mighty. He was well-educated. He was passionate. And he was bold and not afraid. Are those not the qualities that we so often think we lack? And so therefore we assume God is still looking for someone else. Not me. Not me. I'm not eloquent. I'm not bold. I'm not, I don't have a passionate personality. I've never been to Bible college. I'm not educated. Apollos has what we tend to think you have to have to be used by God. Or we assume God would pass us by and look for someone else. But I want you to notice something else right here in this passage. Along with his strengths and his resume and his gifts, Apollos had a deficiency in his theology that created a test for his character. He had a deficiency in his theology that became a test of his character. We don't know exactly what it was. Scholars and commentators have racked their brains trying to guess what was he off on. All we know is what verse 25 says, and I think we're best going with just what the Bible tells us. It just simply says, though he knew only the baptism of John. Despite all his gifts and his strengths and his personality, there was a gap. There was something he was not fully understanding, and he was a little bit off on. And I think if God had wanted us to know exactly what it was, he would have told us. And the reason he doesn't is because there's something more important he wants us to get. It's how Apollos responded to what happened next. Look at verse 26. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, boldly what he thought was right. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Do you realize what just happened? Although he's eloquent, educated, he's got passion and boldness. A lay couple, lay couple, husband and wife team there in Ephesus approached him and pulled him aside to correct him and explain the way of God more accurately. Now you let that sink in for a minute. Because I don't know about you and what you've seen in our day, in our world, and with people. But sadly, here's what I see. Ooh. Ooh. Very often, when someone tries to correct someone who's very gifted and powerful, it does not go well. Have you noticed that? It does not go well. But apparently, Apollos humbled himself and embraced whatever they were saying because the verses go on to say they went on and sent him back to Corinth with their blessing. In other words, get this, folks. The elders didn't have to step in there in the church in Ephesus and sort out a big blow up between Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla because Apollos said, Who do you think you are? Do you know who I am? I've been trained in Egypt in the Bible. I'm educated, catechized. I have this personality. Apparently that's not what he did. And the elders didn't need to clean it all up because it blew up. Listen to me. It is great to have some gifts, even strong gifts that God has given you. But oh, too often those gifts, those same gifts that were meant to serve can be turned into weapons to attack and shut down anyone who tries to tell you anything about 
you. Folks, do we see ourselves as accurately as we think? That was just as weak as the first service. So we're going to do it again. Do we see ourselves as accurately as we think we do? Robust. No. No. Let me tell you one of God's favorite ways to help you see what you're not seeing about you. Other people. You're like, what? I don't mind him telling me or writing it on the wall. Many, many tickle, tickle. But don't use people. I mean, this person's never been to Bible college or this person, this person. I know some of their problems, some of their faults. God's favorite way to help us know something about us that he wants us to know is through other people. So get this early in his ministry. Apollos, I believe, passed the most important test regarding the most essential characteristic as to who God uses most. The humble. He passed the humility test. What about you? What about you regarding this? Think for a minute. Look back at some of the conflicts and relational shrapnel that's scattered behind you. Could it be that God was giving you a humility test and you failed? Whether it was in your marriage or in the workplace or in the church or in the neighborhood. Never mind how gifted you are or how much you think you know. Are you passing the humility test? And notice how I worded that intentionally. Are you passing because it's never a one and done deal. You realize that? It's a lifelong process. Because it will never be, oh, remember the year we killed pride? Good year. We've moved on to other things like end time charts now. No, 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 no. This is that thing that, oh, you've got to be seeing it, be open to it, be killing it. Think about vocations out in the marketplace. There are some vocations that require ongoing or continuing education with regular testing to be allowed to keep doing what you're doing. Oh, hear me. Yes, I hope you know your Bible. There's not, nothing to take pride in being totally ignorant. But here's something more important. God will keep us in the school of humility, giving us regular tests that usually involve other people. 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 I'm convinced that if Apollos had reared up and pushed back and used his amazing gifts to shut this couple down, it would be the last that we hear of Apollos in the Bible. But it's not. Oh, it's not. In fact, God was just preparing his heart for an additional temptation and a test. Because we know from reading Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he had to sort out something that happened there. When Apollos got there and began to do ministry and teach and preach, guess what happened? He got their attention. He's so gifted. There was a group of Christians that began to say, we are of, say it, Apollos. Yeah. We don't follow Jesus. We don't follow Paul. We follow Apollos. He got their attention. That's how it usually works in our world. Giftedness and amazing abilities catches our attention. But here's what I want you to understand. 
You want to know what gets God's attention? See, here's what we got to keep in mind. God is never jazzed about seeing you display and use your amazing gifts. You know why? Because he gave them to you. He's like, yeah, I gave her that. I gave her that. I gave him that. Nothing you have is gotten, is a given. You, you didn't do that. He gave you that. So it's like it's on loan and you're a steward of that. So God's just like, yep, yep, I, I did that. So then what does get God's attention? Like when does God creep to the edge of the heavenlies and say to the cherubim and seraphim, oh, come here, come here, come here. Look at that. Look at that. It's usually something that we're not even paying attention to that's being passed over. You can see it in Isaiah 66. What gets God's attention? Isaiah 66 too. But on this one will I look. You guys, look at me a minute. Nothing escapes God's notice, right? He's, um, he's omniscient. He sees all. Chronicles says the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. Nothing escapes his notice. What captures his attention? When does he say, oh, look at that. Look at that. But on this one will I look. I'll pause. I'll stop. I'll look. On him who is humble and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. And I hope I don't need to unpack humble for you, but let me help you with contrite. You know what contrite means? You are still quick to see your own sin, own your own sin, and grieve over your... You see your own sin first, your own sin is worse, your own sin is what you need to be working on most. It hasn't turned into you're always seeing everybody else's. You're humble, contrite spirit, and... You're not just excited about God's word and you don't always see it for someone else. You tremble at it. In other words, you yourself still revere God's word. It hasn't turned into a tool that you just use. That's always for, you are submitted to God's word. You are still living under the authority of God's word and you revere it. And it's always for you before it ever becomes for someone else. That's who gets God's attention. And it's also worth noting then that the Bible actually tells us in more than one place to be working on this. Do you realize that? It'll say, it'll word it this way. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. We're to be working on this instead of just waiting for a calamity that exposes our lack of it. I heard a pastor one time say, God's plan A is humility. For all of us. God's plan B is humiliation. I want to be working so hard on plan A. That he doesn't need to move to plan B with me. Oh that's good. What could we be doing. So that we could be working on plan A. So that God wouldn't need to move to plan B. Well let me give you some questions that I have found helpful. That you could ask. Because, you know, it's, it's hard when you say, do I, do I think I'm humble? I, I think so. Let me give you a question. Would those who know you best, who live closest to you and work closest to you, spouse, roommate, friends, coworkers, would they say that you're approachable or easy to entreat? The word entreat means to bring you something you're not seeing, particularly about you, to help you. 
Are you approachable and easy to entreat? Or put it this way, if there was something that God wanted you to know about you, could he tell you through those around you that are closest to you, a spouse or a friend or cohort? Or have you already burned all those bridges, slammed those doors and made it clear to everyone around you? Do not try to tell me something about me. It will not go well. Nobody says that out loud. I don't know of anybody who has said, do not. But here's what you do. You react in a way that causes them to say, that wasn't worth it. I don't ever want to do that again. All kinds of versions of this. You get angry. You turn it into a long, drawn-out argument. You can weep and snivel and carry on. You can pout and give them the silent treatment for three days. There's all kinds of ways to do this. But at the end of the day, they know, whew, not worth it, not worth it. Don't try to tell her something about her. Don't try to tell him something about him. Folks, never mind what God might want us to do for his glory. We need to revisit who he wants us to be for his glory. Humble like his son. Who we are matters far more than what we do. Apollos passed the most important test about the most essential characteristic as to who God uses most. The humility test. The humility test. But let me show you something else. Number two in this passage. Number two, you'll need to know how to lead people away from religion into a relationship with Jesus Christ. In chapter 19, verses 1 to 4, Paul runs into a group of people who are called disciples. But I don't want you to make a a mistake. That doesn't mean they're Christians. In that day, a disciple simply meant a student or a follower of someone. All kinds of people had disciples. This is a group of people. They're not pagans, you guys, but they're not Christians. Because they, they just have bits and pieces. They understood John's baptism. John came preparing the way for Jesus and laid a foundation of repentance. Repent, repent, he's coming. But the other half of that is, and believe in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Somehow, it's been 20 years, but they didn't have social media back then. Somehow it's been 20 years and this group still hasn't gotten word. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again. They are still following and believing Bits and pieces, but they don't have a complete picture of Jesus Christ and who he is. Guess what? That is the world we live in today. Christianity has been around for 2,000 years. It would almost be easier if every person you began to engage about spiritual things started with a blank slate. Right? They don't. This is what's so challenging. There's this hodgepodge of bits and pieces of things they've put together. Some of it's right, but the way they've put it together is wrong. And that's what we're up against. I know the media would love you to believe that our land is just packed with atheists. That is one of the biggest lies. Our biggest challenge as Christians today is not trying to convince atheists there's a God. It's trying to convince people who are clinging to bits and pieces of a patchwork religion that they need to lay it down and come to Jesus and cry out for mercy for a savior and a relationship. Not religion, a relationship. That's the, the, what they are clinging to gets in the way of you leading them to someone better. 
they think they're okay. They think they're okay. They have a security in this. That's our challenge, you guys. Think about it. Jews today, practicing Jews today, they believe in more than... Do you realize they stand with us in believing 60% of their Bible? They believe the entire Old Testament. You know there's more Old Testament than New. They believe in 39 books, 60% of the Bible, they stand with us. They just don't understand how all of that was pointing to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of it. They haven't made it all the way to Jesus. Muslims today have a high regard for Jesus, high regard. But they do not believe that he died on the cross for their sins. They've got Jesus. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, do they have Jesus? Do they have Jesus in their equation? That was weak. Yes. Yes, but they do not believe he's the son of God, equal to God, God in flesh. They believe he's a created being. And to make it even more confusing, some of the largest mainline church denominations in the world today have Jesus. They're still talking about Jesus. He's in there, someone. They've got pictures and icons and statues of Jesus but he gets completely overshadowed by the tradition of candles and confession and incense and praying to saints and everything under the sun except the free offer of salvation by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. They've got Jesus. They've got bits and pieces. But they're lost. And so... We need to be able and ready to ask questions that will lead someone away from the patchwork religion that they're clinging to all the way to the Savior. Bring it back to Jesus, you guys. Don't let them chase rabbits with you on other issues. Bring it back to Jesus. And I rarely have someone resist me when I say, you know, that's a good question. Because usually they want to debate cultural issues, particularly politics. I'm not interested Republicans are going to hell. Democrats are going to hell. Independents are going to hell. All kinds of people who adhere to different parties are going to hell. That is not our most important question. Do you know Jesus? Bring it back to Jesus. A couple years ago, I was flying back from North Carolina. And I ended up sitting next to a guy. And I began to engage him in conversation. Dynamic businessman. Very gifted. But he was a reformed Jew. And he was involved in his synagogue. He was not on the edges of his deal. He was right there as a leader, involved in leading the synagogue, involved in, on the school board for his kids' Hebrew school, right? He loved his wife. He loved his kids. He loved his synagogue. But he had no answers to the most important questions I was asking him because he only had bits and pieces of the truth about who God is and how we can be right with him. So as a reformed Jew, I kept asking him, I kept saying, all right, without, without the Old Testament sacrificial system that you're no longer practicing, you don't kill goats and bulls and heifers and doves, but you say Jesus is not the Messiah that you're waiting for. You don't have the Old Testament sacrifices and you don't have Jesus. And so I kept saying, what do you do with your sin? What do you do with your sin? And he said, he didn't know. He didn't know. He didn't know. I asked him about their most important day, their high holiday, most important, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, right? 
I said, if Jesus isn't the Messiah and you're no longer practicing all that that the Old Testament talked about, what are you celebrating on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement? What are you celebrating? How are your sins covered? And he didn't know. So I switched gears and I said, okay, as a Jew now with no Messiah, no Savior, no atonement, how do you get to heaven? Oh, and this he knew. I mean, with gusto, he said, be good. I said, that is so lame. No, I didn't. (laughs) Because you're going to hear that a lot, right? You'll hear that from all kinds of people. Oh, be good. And so I've told you this before, but get a hold of this. The question you want to ask next is, but how do we know how good is good enough? You're going to hear the be good all the time. Just ask, but how do you know how good is good enough? Who sets the standard? How do you know if you've arrived, if you've... And he kind of got quiet and he said, I guess we do. We decide. I just let it hang there. And then I said, you're going to base your eternity on that? I said, your Old Testament doesn't even teach that. Be good. The Old Testament that you say you believe teaches that the law can only save you if you keep it perfectly. And he agreed with me. And so I said, the law was given to show us our sin and to show us our need for a savior. And when I said that, I'll never forget because he waved his hands. He said, I'm a Jew. I'm in. It's you Gentiles that have to worry about that. Oh, now we know what he's trusting in. Ethnicity, religious heritage. And it's not just Jews that can step into that, right? There's all kinds of people that, ah, I come from a Christian family, Baptist. We've been at XYZ Baptist Church for hundreds of years. My granddaddy was a circuit riding preacher. My mom, my dad, we've been Baptists our whole life. Great. When did you put your trust in Jesus Christ? The fact that your grandfather was a pastor and your family is Christian doesn't make you a Christian. There are people all around you trusting in heritage and ethnicity, bits and pieces, who still don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the only hope. So we need to be able to ask questions to bring them back or out of the piecemeal of what they're trusting in to Jesus Christ. Number three, you will need to rely on the power of Scripture. And not just the force of your own personality and arguments. Oh, look at what stands out. Look at what Apollos does in chapter 18, verse 28. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly. How? Showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Here's why I think this is such a big deal, you guys. Because it even happens to me. It is easy to get sucked into a conversation or an argument where it's just back and forth, back and forth. You say, I say, you say, I say, I've got an illustration. I. But at the end of the day, you never used the Bible. You never used scripture. You said some great things. You've got some clever arguments. You had a killer story or illustration, but you didn't use the Bible. It even happens to me sometimes with counseling. Or I'll have one of those nights like it's a Mount Carmel, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. 
You know, they say it, I say it. Nah, nah. And I'll be driving home the Holy Spirit, like right out on Gunpowder Road to say, you never used the Bible. I'm like, no way, surely I did. And then I think, you're right, I didn't. I just got sucked in to saying stuff and good stuff. But not Bible. Not Bible. Scripture. Apollos didn't make that mistake. Even though he was eloquent and mighty and passionate and bold, he knew where the power was. He wasn't depending on his own personality and arguments to change a life. He used the scriptures. And let me encourage you, those of you who are sitting here that might think, I don't have that big personality and I don't have that kind of mind that can argue and reason so well. Guess what? You actually might have the advantage because you won't be as susceptible to stepping into the trap of just depending on your only persuasive powers and your sharp mind. You've got nothing but scripture. Yay. Use it. Well, I'm, I'm, I don't have. Yeah, I'm phlegmatic. I'm whatever. Just sit there. Hey. And then quote a Bible verse. Let them talk some more. Quote another Bible verse. It's God's word that has power. Not our words. Not our arguments. Not even our great illustrations. God may be pleased to use any and all of that. But at the end of the day, he's only promised us that his word has power. 2,300 years ago, the philosopher Aristotle argued in his book, Rhetoric, that still gets referred to in communication classes, etc. He argued in his book, Rhetoric, that there are three ways you can try to persuade someone to do something. Lagos, ethos, and pathos. And when he talked about logos, he was talking about the content of what you're saying. What's the actual content of what you're bringing in this moment? Logos. Well, the New Testament writers grabbed hold of that Greek word and used it 329 times in the New Testament to refer to God's inspired word and God's son, the living word. Logos. Logos. What about ethos? Ethos is how you as a person come across when you're talking to someone. How you as a person come across. It's your own story that you bring to the moment of persuasion. It's the authenticity and believability of how what you're saying has impacted your own life. Do you really believe this? Do you have a personal story? Can you show them how this has changed your life? So I hope you realize as Christians, there's a place for sharing your own testimony. Tell them how Jesus changed your life. But let me give you a caution. Do you realize if you just tell your story, your testimony quote, and it never moves from ethos to logos, the next person that comes along can tell a better... You realize everyone out there's got a story? Our culture's all about story. Story, story, story. The Mormons will tell you they have a burning in their bosom. Do you have that apart from pizza and anchovies? I mean, they can say, I've got a burning in my bosom. Muslims could talk about a vision, a dream. If we're up against just who has the most amazing personal testimony, we could lose. The next person that comes along could be more articulate with a more amazing personal testimony. We're not trying to win people by our personal testimony. So let me encourage you. Those of you that were saved young aren't as susceptible to this. I don't hardly ever share my testimony because I got saved when I was seven, right? So I can't talk about rolling up dollar bills in first grade and snorting cocaine. And I finally had to give it all up and move away from that girl that was so. I was seven. 
So I don't use my testimony. Don't even be saying don't use yours. But those of you that got saved later in life and you were living this way and then you began going this way. Don't even be saying it's not powerful and helpful. Just make sure that you insert and sprinkle in your testimony of ethos, logos. Pick out some key verses that you share as you tell your story. Does that make sense? Because after you walk away, your story can fade, but God's word remains. Memorize yourself a couple of key verses that you want to use in your story. You do not want to leave them with only ethos. You want them to get logos, logos, logos. God's word is what is powerful. Then what about pathos? Pathos is when you stir up an emotion in someone to get them to do what you want them to do. Whether it's based on fear or anger or utopian ecstasy. Think about this. Hitler's speeches, you guys, were packed with pathos, right? Oh, my goodness. Did he have the ability to speak and stir masses of people to do something? Yes, But he was crazy. He didn't depend on reasoning at all. He was counting on emotion. The way I speak, I stir the crowds into a frenzy to do something next that is not based on reason or logos. It is pure pathos. Now, here's the problem. If you depend on that as a Christian and you have a way to stir people with pathos, If the only thing that moved them towards Jesus was emotions, then when those emotions die, so will their commitment to Jesus. You don't want it to just be emotions. Even I grew up in churches where it was more like like scare them into the kingdom. You know, so they showed us movies with people disappearing and then going to hell and flames all over the screen. And I'm gripping the pew like, oh, I don't want to go to hell. Yes, I'll pray the prayer now. Well, right now there's a place when I read Revelation, I'm like, this is real. This is terrifying. It should motivate me to speak to people. But trying to scare people into the kingdom or use emotions of whatever kind will not last and will not work. Logos. You think about the advertising industry. The advertising industry largely depends on pathos. They want to elicit an emotion in you, stir some kind of emotion that actually will get you to react and skip thinking altogether and just buy based on a feeling. Buy based on a feeling. Folks, we're not selling Jesus. We're telling people about Jesus. So use Lagos. Whether it's in your email, include a scripture, whether it's in a card, whether it's in a note. I'll never forget... Uh, This one uh, guy in a church up in New York City where I have a friend being a pastor and he got dramatically saved. He was in his late 20s and he looked at me. He told me, he said, oh, my goodness, my mom, who would still pack my lunch, would put a little piece of paper in my lunchbox with a scripture. And he was living like a hellion. You would think he would just crumble it up and throw it. He said, "I, I couldn't. It's my mom. And I would read it every time. I would read it every time. I would read it and the effect of God's word on little pieces of paper in his lunch led him to putting his trust in Jesus Christ. Now, don't hear me saying that's a magic little, okay, all your mamas do that. It's lunch boxes and little pieces of paper. My point is, right, God's word. Had she cried? Yes. How many mamas have not just cried in their son's face and said, you're breaking my heart? They don't care. Emotion won't get it done. Manipulation won't feel bad for a mama won't get it done. 
God's word can get it done. Use God's word, whether it's in an email, a Facebook post, a card you're sending someone, or a conversation that you're having. Even with this man on the plane, right? Sure, I used some pathos and maybe some ethos. But folks, I left that man with logos. At the end of our conversation, I said, all right, you're a Jew. You believe in the Old Testament. Have you ever carefully read Isaiah 53? He said, no. I said, it shows Jesus is the Messiah who came and died and suffered. And God's wrath was put on him so that we could be freed and our sins forgiven. Would you read Isaiah 53? And he said, sure. And I wrote the reference on a piece of paper. I left him with Logos. Not Brad's passion. God's word. God's word. God's word. Be ready to use God's word and don't be ashamed to use verses that you think maybe they know. You don't have to be clever. It doesn't have to be from Nahum. You can, use, you can still use John 3.16. It's an amazing verse. You can still use Romans 3.23. Did you know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Just know yourself some basic verses because they are powerful. That's why Hebrews chapter 4 says what it does. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word... And that, in the Greek right there, it's logos. For the logos of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. Look at what God's word can do that you can't do in a conversation. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's word can do what we could never do. And God sees what we could never see in that person we're talking to. Use God's word. Number four. You'll need to know Jesus as your own personal savior. I know you might say, duh. But it's not duh, you guys. You realize there are all kinds of people running around out there talking about Jesus and trying to do things in Jesus' name or for Jesus that actually don't know Jesus as their personal Savior. It's not a no-brainer. You need to know Jesus as your personal Savior. Because here's the deal. Human beings have always been attracted to anything that is powerful. 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 This is not a new problem. It's an age-old problem. So people are attracted to Jesus and attracted to the power they see related to Christianity, but for all the wrong reasons. They're attracted to it simply to use it for their own name or their own gain rather than to submit to it and be changed by it. That's what's going on in chapter 19, verse 13. Look at verse 13, chapter 19 again. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. So apparently these were guys that did this for a living. We just roamed the countryside to exorcise evil spirits. They took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul Preaches. Do you hear how distant they are from Jesus? It's almost comical. We exercise you not by Jesus whom we love, Jesus who we follow, the Jesus whom Paul preaches. 
In other words, we don't even know him. He's not our savior. But oh my goodness, we've been seeing how this in the name of Jesus thing has been working for Paul. They simply see it as a formula for success. They see the name of Jesus as like a magical incantation that they can just wave around or quote over somebody. And I've got news for you. Even sometimes Christians fall into that trap. Even with the whole, why do we pray in Jesus name? And you act like if you just say that in Jesus name. Folks, praying in Jesus name means Praying according to his will and based on his merit and what he does for us interceding before a holy God. Or we couldn't even get there. It's not a magical just little way to end your... It captures why you're coming and how you're coming in Jesus' name. I have no right to come, but he's there and therefore I can come boldly. In Jesus' name. It's not a magical incantation. It's not a formula that you can just... Use And the demons know it. And they actually call them out on it. Look at what it says in verse 15. I love it. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. But who are you? Now, don't make a mistake here, folks. The demon knows exactly who they are. It's a rhetorical question. The demon is actually saying, who do you think you are? I know who Jesus is and I know who Paul is. But until you have Jesus as Lord of your life, you have no authority to speak into mine. And then he gave them a good old fashioned demonic butt kicking. That's the butt with two T's right there. Yeah. I mean, woo, a beat down. They didn't arrive naked, but they left naked. Just beat the fool out of them and beat the clothes off of them. Oh, my goodness. It says he jumped on them, overpowered them, sends them running naked and wounded. And that Greek word for wounded is the word traumatizo. Yeah. They left traumatized and demoralized as they realized We have no power because we do not have a personal relationship with Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Not about. So I want to ask you, not do you know about him? They knew about him. I'm sure you've heard. You may have a spouse that you know loves him. I'm asking you, not do you know about Jesus? Or could you even quote some of the things that he said? But have you personally experienced for yourself the power of Jesus' name that solves your biggest problem? The sin problem that separates us from a holy God that you could never solve on your own. Have you experienced that power? Have you surrendered your life to the power of Jesus' name, who he is and what he's done? Remember way back in Acts chapter 4, it's been some months now, but Peter boldly proclaimed to those religious leaders in Acts chapter 4, let it be known to you all and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, by his authority, by his power, by his merit, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man stands here whole. And then he went on to say, this Jesus is the stone you rejected, but God has made him the chief cornerstone. Listen to me. 
Jesus is just not one stone in the wall of religion and you choose the one you like best. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have salvation. If you don't have Jesus, personal relationship with Jesus, you are not right with the God of the universe. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the only way to be made right with God. That's why then he went on to say, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking if you've got a patchwork of things that there's a little bit of truth mixed in there and, you, and you're tenaciously trying to do it. I'm asking you, do you know Jesus? Have you submitted your life to Jesus? Have you said, yes, Lord Jesus, you're my only hope. You're my only hope for salvation. I could never be good enough. I could never do all the right things. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for Jesus, God in flesh, who he is and what he did for us that we could never do for ourselves. Oh, God, would you would you make each one of us personally settled and secure in who Jesus is for us before we ever try to do anything else for anyone else? And for anyone here that is actually deceived and is lost in a patchwork of bits and pieces of religion, open their eyes to a savior, not a system, a savior. And then use us, God, to not be intimidated and to understand that we need to just tell people about Jesus. Ask good questions. Bring them back to the only hope Would you use us in our weakness with all of our personalities? Doesn't matter what our personality is like. We have your word. We have your spirit. We have direct access to your throne. And we have your command. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And lo, I'm with you always. Use us in our weakness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.